0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. As always, uh, I'd like for you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. We're jumping back into the gospel of Mark. If, uh, If you're new, we as a church typically are going verse by verse through the scriptures. Every once in a while we'll stop, take a break, and preach on a specific series. But we're going through the gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark 11, verse 27. I'm going to read to you the story today and, and then uh, because it's a, it's a story that you can't really break apart, you've got to kind of hear it at one time, hear it together, and then I'll explain uh, the story, exposit it a little bit, and then we'll apply it there at the end of the message, but a little bit longer story, so stay engaged so you understand what's going on here in the text. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, that's Jesus. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, what, or, what, or rather, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it says, He began to speak to them in parables. And he talked about a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And, And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In verse 10 he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him. But they feared the people for they perceived that they had been told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Alright, this is the story we're looking at today in the scripture. You see these guys in the scripture that the Bible calls the chief priests. They were the men that were in charge of the temple. These were the top religious folks in, in Judaism, and they come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, "Hey, Jesus, under what authority are you doing all these things?" Now, what is it? What when they say these things, what are they talking about? Well, they're probably referring to the fact that Jesus walked into the temple and started turning over all the tables. He walked in. There was these money changers that were in there. They were crooked. Jesus walks in and just starts throwing the tables over and driving them out of the temple. And so they come to Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, which is this backwoods part of, of the country. He has no training. He's not a rabbi, according to them. He has no seminary training. And he's not a chief priest, according to them. And so basically they come to Jesus, and they're like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Some guy from Nazareth to come into our temple and do what you did, right? Now, what's interesting when they ask Jesus that question is that he completely ignores them. He completely ignores the question. He turns the tables on them and he asks them a question. And this is the question he asks them. He looks at them and says, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the authority that I have if you'll answer this question for me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, what he's doing there when he's asking that question, he's asking them this. Did the ministry of John the Baptist, was it from God or was it just man-made? And that, that question, when he asked him, completely stumps them. Because the Pharisees get together, they start talking, they realize that if they say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God, they know that that would endorse Jesus' ministry because John the Baptist endorsed Jesus and baptized him. And if they say it was for man, that John the Baptist ministry was for man, then they know that would upset everybody because everybody loved John the Baptist. And so they decide that either way, <coughs> they're in trouble. So they walk back to Jesus and they say, we don't know where it comes from. Jesus says, that's what I figured. Now let me tell you a story. And then he tells them a story about a man who planted a vineyard. And then the man left, put some people in charge of the vineyard. And then the man sends a servant to the vineyard to find out if fruit's growing. And the guys that were running the vineyard, they beat him up and kicked him out, rejected him. So he sends another servant. Same thing happens. Sends another servant, they kill him. Sends another servant, they beat him and reject him. But th- th- this vineyard owner keeps sending these, these uh, representatives of him. And, they keep, and the people that have the, are running the vineyard keep beating him down or killing him. And so finally the vineyard owner says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect him. And so he sends his son, but they kill his son. Right? And then Jesus, when he's telling the story, is referring to all the prophets that have come to Israel with the message of God and the, and the people of Israel. They continue to reject the prophets, they beat the prophets, they kill the prophets. And then Jesus foretells his own death and talks about how the vineyard owner is going to send his son, but they're going to kill his son And then after that, in verse 10, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Let's look at it. He quotes Psalm 118, and he says this. He says, have you not read the scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And by the way, if you've ever wondered, just a little side note, if you ever wondered where we got the name of our church, it's that verse. He says, the stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, Jesus says, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, listen carefully. When he quotes Psalm 118, when he said this back in the day, and at that moment, at that very moment, Psalms 118 was already considered a messianic psalm. So the chief priest knew that that psalm was talking about the coming Messiah. And so what Jesus does is he answers the chief priest and basically says, hey, you know that messianic stone that the builders that you are going to reject, it's going to become the cornerstone. God's going to build this whole thing off the death of his son. That's what he's saying. Right? And it's the Lord's doing from the very beginning, right? And this was a roundabout way of Jesus saying and answering their question Hey, you know the authority that I have? The authority that I have, Jesus is saying, comes from God. This was God's plan. This was God's idea. The reason, boys, I can come into your temple and throw the tables over, Jesus is saying, is because it's my temple. I built it. I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to raise it again in three days. That's what Jesus is saying. And it was at that moment. That the chief priests looked at him and they made the decision, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're going to get rid of him. They decide right then and there they're going to arrest him. But they start looking around and they realize we can't do this right in front of all the people. And so they walk away. Now, here's what I'm going to talk about today. There's this story in Mark is Mark beginning to explain to us and beginning to really show us some of the first echoes of something that I have always found haunting about the Pharisees and the chief priest and the elders, the men that were God's men, that knew the law, that ran the whole thing, the whole religious leaders of the people of Israel. I've always found this haunting about them. And what it reveals to them is this, is that their issue, and hear this, their issue with Jesus was not that they didn't believe that his authority was from God. That was not their issue with Jesus. And you see that played out over and over and over again in the scripture. Their issue with Jesus was not that they didn't believe that his authority with God. Their issue with Jesus is that they did not want to submit to his authority. That was their issue. That was their problem. I thought, uh, how many of you guys watched the mini-series of the Bible? Raise your hand. Uh, what? All right. If, it, it, on the Cayman History Channel. If, I, watched, uh, I watched that with my family a few weeks ago. And if you hadn't seen it, I'd strongly encourage you to watch it or go buy the DVDs or whatever. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, what I was so impressed with it is usually when when uh, groups like that do things like that, they take a lot of um, just liberty in telling the story. It was incredibly accurate. Um, one of the only things that I really saw, and I, I missed one of them, but one of the only things I saw that wasn't accurate is they had Mary Magdalene, Um, with the disciples all the time. They pictured her in the boat with Jesus. I I just don't think that happened. But everything else was really accurate. And when they did take some liberty, I thought instead of taking away from the accuracy of the text, I thought it added to the overall picture of the accuracy of the text. And one of the things that the Bible did on the History Channel that I thought was amazing is they really showed, um, did a great job of showing that these chief priests... These elders, these Pharisees, I thought they did a great job of showing that at the end of the day, these guys really believed in their heart of hearts that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. They showed that. That these guys, they showed, and this was true in the scripture, you go read it yourself, Jesus would speak and he would pierce their hearts. They were convicted by the person of Jesus. You see it when the woman caught in adultery, She just looks at him and says, hey, whichever one of you guys has never sinned, y'all... Y'all throw the first stone, they drop the stones, they take off. They're convicted by the words of Jesus. The, these men, these chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, they saw the power of Jesus and his divinity displayed over and over and over again. Typically, when Jesus did miracles, it was these guys that were standing there watching it happen. These men knew that Jesus was resurrected. Go read the Bible. So I talked about at Easter. They knew he was resurrected. They put Roman guards in front of the tomb. The Roman guards saw the thing happen. They saw the angel. They saw the stone rolled away. The Roman guards go back to the chief priest. The chief priest said, what happened? The Roman guards looked at him and said, the guy came out of the grave. And their response to the Roman guards was, don't tell anybody it happened. They absolutely believed in the resurrection. Yet at the end of the day, they refused to follow him or submit to him. Now, you got to ask the question why. And here's the reason. They knew, these chief priests knew, that if they admitted that Jesus was the Christ, if they came out and they said it, Jesus is the Christ, He's the Son of the living God, they know that if they do that, they're going to lose their position. They know that if they do that, they're going to lose their power. They know that if they do that, they're going to lose their influence. They know that if they do that, that they admit that he's a Christ, they're going to lose their control. And so instead of submitting to his authority and his power, they killed him in order that they could keep their own authority and power and control. Now here's the thing, church. I have seen, or rather there has been untold number of people throughout the centuries. Jesus, as a matter of fact, says it is most people that do this, that walk away from Jesus. They walk away from Jesus, and they choose not to follow Jesus. And they they walk away from Jesus not because they didn't believe that he was who he says he was, They don't walk away because they look at Jesus and go, no, I think you're lying or I think you're crazy. They don't walk away from Jesus because they don't believe he is who he says he was. They walk away from Jesus because they were unwilling to hand over control of their lives to him. And church, make no mistake. Make no mistake that when you make the decision to follow Jesus, when Jesus calls you to himself he calls us to a lot more than Sunday morning worship attendance. When Jesus calls us to himself, one of the things that he is calling us to in this relationship is to hand over the reins of our life to him, he calls us to surrender authority, power, and control of our lives to him. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, if you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul's talking to the church, and he's describing what this relationship with Jesus is going to look like... after we begin to follow Christ. Some of the defining marks of a child of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he makes a statement. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. He starts the sentence off. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. He's saying as believers... He's saying this to the church... that as believers we are no longer controlled anymore... By the love we have for ourselves. Our our love for ourselves is no longer what controls us anymore. He's saying it is our love for Jesus that now controls our lives. We're being controlled by something completely different. He goes on and he says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now here's what he's saying there. He says, since Christ died for you, you are to die to yourself. Because Christ died. He paid the pardon. He, made, he gave you a way back to heaven, back to the Lord. Now because of that, because he died, you have to die to yourself. And then he goes on in 15 and it says, He has died for all that those who live, that those of us who live might live or rather might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, was there, who for their sake died and was raised. So three things he says defines a follower of Christ. One is you're no longer controlled anymore by your love for yourself, but you're controlled by your love for Jesus. Two, because Christ died for you, you are to die to yourself. And three, because you have died to yourself, you are to now live for him. That's the mark of a believer, okay? Pharisees were unwilling to do that. Um, another, another verse that clearly points this out in kind of a roundabout way is, uh, is Matthew 5, 5. Jesus makes a statement in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you ever wondered what that means? It just seems like a, a weird verse to me because when we hear the word meek, we think weak. So it almost feels like Jesus is saying, blessed are the weak for they're the ones that are going to be able to inherit the earth. But here's the thing. The word meek does not mean weak. This is the definition of the word meek biblically. The word meek means power under control. All right, it was a word, we know that, because it's a word that was all the time back in the day used for a broken horse. When a horse was broken, when it went from crazy uh, to broken, it would say that it was meek, right? It means, it means power under control. Now think about that. A broken horse has all the strength of an unbroken horse. It still has the same amount of strength. A, a broken horse still has all the, all the passion Of an unbroken horse. But a broken horse takes all that strength and it takes all that passion and it submits it to the man that's holding the reins. Okay? And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, Blessed are those not who are powerful. He doesn't say, blessed are the powerful, for they're going to inherit the earth. That's man's way. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have power under authority. Blessed are those who have power under the control of another. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will inherit the earth. All right, that's what we're talking about here. That's the mark of a believer. It's power, it's passion, it's life who's been given to the reins of another, which is Jesus. One of the best biblical examples of this, of what it's to look like when we do this, is the story of Mary. I love the story of Mary, I always have. <clears throat> the angel comes to Mary. Mary's bee along with her life, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. She's a teenager, she's doing her thing, living her life. She had dreams. I guarantee you, Mary had dreams about what her life was like. She was a real human being, just like you and just like me. And all of a sudden, she's cruising along and there's an angel standing at the door. And he looks at her and says, he says, says, Mary, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bear a son. She looks at him and says, how in the world is that going to happen? I've never even been with a man. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus, which means Emmanuel, God with us. And the kingdom is going to be built through this whole thing. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but here's the point. It hits Mary in that moment. It hits Mary in that moment that her life, as she knew it, was over. (coughs) She knew what she was going to be called when she walked out the door and she began to grow and people knew she wasn't married. She knew what that was going to be like. She'd read the stories of the Old Testament. She knew the prophecy of the Messiah that by his wounds we would be healed. She knew that she was going to watch her son die one day. But what she does is that hits her. That I'm about to hand over the reins of my life to God. When that hits her, this is her response. She looks at the angel and she says, I am the slave of the Lord. And he can do with me whatever he wants. She says, I'm a slave of the Lord. He can do with me whatever he wants. That is the mark of a believer. And so it always breaks my heart. It always breaks my heart when I see somebody in the church that claims to be a believer. But they will not surrender the reins of their life to him. I can't tell you how many times over the years that that's happened, that there will be somebody that's in our church and and, and, and it will come out that they're in this unrepentant sin. And so the elders of the church will come and will confront them. And they will not repent. They will not come and hand the reins to Jesus over their life. And, and so we'll come to them and, and we'll call them to repent. And they won't. And inevitably at some point in time in, in this interaction, this will come out of their mouth. They will say something to the effect of, uh, you have no authority in my life. Even though I'm a partner of the church, even though i signed a covenant that, 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 that bound me to the biblical covenant of, of partnership and, and submission to the elders of the local body of Christ, they'll say, you have no authority in my life, which is a completely unbiblical statement. But then the people that say that 99 times out of 100, this is the next step. After they look at the elders of the church and say, you have no authority in my life, almost every single time it's just a matter of time before they won't just walk away from the church, but they'll walk away from Jesus. And when they walk away from Jesus, what it reveals is this, is their problem was not with the authority of the elders of the Austin Stone Community Church. Their problem was with the authority of God. They didn't want to submit. It's not that they didn't want to submit to us. They didn't want to submit to Jesus, right? And so unlike Mary, and whatever the situation is, I'm not going to get into it, but here's the point. You you do the math. They just, whatever situation they're in, they, they love their sin more than they love Jesus. And so unlike Mary, who said, I'm the slave of the Lord. I'll do whatever he wants. Their heartbeat is I'm nobody's slave. I'm not the slave of the Lord. And I'm going to do whatever I want. Okay. This response of these Christians that I'm talking about, so-called Christians, I think the scripture would say that it's incredibly iffy. If that's your heartbeat, if you're a believer, <coughs> the response of the Pharisees and the chief priests who actually believe he is who he says he is and yet refuse to submit the range of their life to him. They're great examples. And I've seen this over the years and it's biblical. You see in the Old Testament, you see it played out in the New, that there's really two kinds of rebellion biblically against the Lord. And these are people that I would say claim the name of Christ. When we, when we rebel, when we fall short of the glory of God, when we sin, which we all do, all right, it's covered, it's forgiven, but there's really two kinds of rebellion. One is what I would call a childish rebellion. It's a childish rebellion that, that our sin manifests its, uh, itself this way. It comes out of a childish heart. But then there's another kind of sin that's a lot more dangerous, it looks like, in the Scripture. And that's willful rebellion. And, and the thing is, is, is you really probably fall in one of those two camps. And I want to talk to you about the difference between the two. And we'll end today by you evaluating your heart and where you're at. And we'll call ourselves to repentance. But here's the thing. I'll use an example of, of my children and kind of way they respond to the authority of their dad in their lives. To kind of illustrate the difference. Between childish and willful rebellion, I have three kids, and I'm gonna do my best not to give away which kids I'm talking about because one of them's in the room right now. And um, um, but anyway, I may or may not be talking about you, John Daniel. And uh, but let's use the proverbial example of the cookie jar. All right. Say, for instance, my wife makes cookies, she puts them in a jar, and she puts them on the on the thing and says, "We're not gonna eat these till tomorrow because you guys have had enough sugar today." And we leave the room. And we go away, and then 10 minutes later, one of my children will walk in, and this child will have, you know, chocolate on the corner of their mouths and crumbs coming down off their chin. And we'll look at this child, and we'll say, hey, did you eat a cookie? And then this child will immediately start weeping, right? (laughs) And then he'll just, all right, right. (laughs) don't tell anybody I'm not talking about you, John Hill, honestly. But this child will just start crying like I did it. I did it. The devil made me do it. I'm sorry. And, and I'm not joking, he'll just repent and then he'll just confess every sin that every I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Please forgive me, you're right. All right y'all ever seen that uh, that movie The Goonies? Y'all remember Chunk back in the day? If you've seen the movie, if you haven't, don't worry about it. But there's this guy named Chunk, and the bad guys catch him. They're like, "Tell us what you know." He starts saying every sin he's ever committed in his life. And there was a time I pushed my sister down the stairs, and I blamed it on the dog. Right? That's what this one child does. He'll sin, but when he sins, it's just, "Oh, I'm sorry. You know, take me back." Kind of a thing. That is childish rebellion. It's a sin. Jesus had to die for that kind of sin. It's a big deal, but it's coming from a a heart of of childishness and lack of wisdom. That was Peter. Peter, on the night that Jesus needed him more than any other night, completely failed Jesus. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the, the, the sin that Peter committed, at the end of the day, was every bit as bad as the sin that Judas committed. But what happened? Denies him three times... He cusses the last time he denies him. And then immediately the rooster crows. And then it hit him what Jesus has said. You're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. And as soon as it hit him, he starts weeping. He starts weeping. And it just crushes him that he let the Lord down. And he runs. And what was the response of Jesus to this absolutely heinous sin? He denied that he even knew Jesus on the night Jesus needed him the most. But what was Jesus' response? Jesus pursues him. Jesus goes after him. Jesus finds him, Peter, on the beach. He cooks him breakfast. And he calls him back to ministry. Now he rebukes him. He disciplines, but he, but he pursues him, cooks him breakfast, restores him back in the ministry. And there, Sin is sin. I don't want you to hear me incorrectly. Sin is sin. Jesus had to die for the sin of Peter, I'm telling you. But there's so much grace. There's so much grace when we just kind of come and we love the Lord, but we mess up and we repent. But there's another kind of rebellion against God, and that's a willful rebellion. And it's, it's the premeditated rebellion. It's the obstinate rebellion. I got another child, right? Same cookie jar. They'll go, they'll eat it. They walk in, crumbs on their chin. You look at them, did you eat the cookie? And this child will look right in my eye and go, yes. Yes, sir. Would you say yes, sir? They'll look at me and go, yes, sir. I'm going go, why did you eat the cookie? Because I wanted to. Well, I'm going to have to spank you. I told you not to eat the cookie. I'm going to have to spank you. And they'll look at me and go, do your worst, right? <laughs> Y'all think I'm joking. And so because this child is saved, this, this child is saved, this child will repent. But i got to go Old Testament on this kid. <laughs> right? i got to go Old Testament on this kid. Right? Right of God kind of Old Testament kind of stuff. And this child will eventually repent. But I just want you to see that that kind of rebellion is not coming from a place of childishness. It's coming from a willful, obstinate heart. Willful heart. And and it's like, I know what my parents say, but I do not care because I'm going to do what I'm going to do, what I want to do. In church, God deals very differently with willful rebellion. He deals very differently. Don't turn there, but just listen in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. God talks about this. This willful rebellion of someone who knows who he is but will not honor him as God. In verse 19 of Romans 1, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to these people. It's plain to them because God's shown it to them. Okay, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. They've been Perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Look at verse twenty-one, because this is critical. He says, for although they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That is willful rebellion. They knew God. They perceived who he was because of creation, but they would not honor him as God. They would not give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In verse 18, we'll go back to 18 because we see what happens. The result of this wolf of rebellion in verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, they know the truth, but they suppress the truth. They know God, but they do not honor him as God. And do not give thanks. And the result of that kind of sin is not breakfast on the beach with Jesus. The result of that kind of sin is the wrath of God. And I can't tell you how many over the years as I've watched those people that I was talking about that reject the authority of the church, reject the authority of Jesus. I can't tell you how many of them over the years because I know their names. The words of Jesus at a time in their life pierce their hearts. They saw over and over again the power of God. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. But they refused, when it came down to it, to hand over the reins of their life to him. So I want you to take just a moment here as we wrap this thing up. And I think one of the best things you could ever do is evaluate Your sin pattern, is is it coming from a place of just foolishness and childishness and and, and sinning because just lack of wisdom, but there's repentance there? Or do you see the hooks and the patterns of willful, obstinate rebellion against God? See, if you're in a place of, of childishness and you could honestly say, yeah, that's where I'm coming from. This is what you pray for today. This is what repentance looks like for you. You pray for wisdom. You pray for wisdom. God, give me the wisdom not to put my hand in the stupid cookie jar again. Pray for wisdom. Peter needed wisdom more than anything else. Two, you pray for wisdom, too, and then, and then you just, you, give, you ask God, God, give me the strength to continue to repent. Give me the strength, God, to continue to repent in my life. I read something the other day by John Piper. I thought he nailed it. He said, as long as you see genuine repentance in your life, you're all right. As long as you continue to see genuine repentance in your life, you're doing good. As long as you can continue to get back up, you're doing okay. The second you can no longer repent, you're in trouble. All right? You pray, God, God, let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to you. That's what that means. Lastly, I think uh, you, you childish people, you and me, we trust in the love of God. We trust in that. I think as childish rebellious, a lot of time, we don't believe Daddy loves us because we've messed up so much. We've got to cling to the truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to believe that. Willful, rebellious, the kind of person that you do not like submitting to the authority of God. You do not like handing over control of your life to Him. All right, here's the thing. Those are dangerous seeds in your heart, especially if you claim the name of Christ. Those are dangerous seeds in your heart. First step is admitting that that's you. That's step one. Yes, Father, I see those hooks in me. Yes, Lord, I see those seeds in my heart. all right? And if that's the tendency of your heart, you beg God to change you. You beg God to soften your heart. You make war on that sin. You ask God, it's a hard prayer to pray. I've prayed it. God break my will. Break my will. Lord, produce meekness in my life. Let let me have all the power that you've given me. Let me keep all the passion that I have, but let it be submitted to you as you hold the reins in my life. You do whatever you gotta do because Romans 1 is clear and that's not where I wanna be. But the good news today is regardless of where you stand, regardless of where you stand, the gospel is more powerful than childish and willful rebellion. Amen? The Bible is full of stories of God taking childish, childishly rebellious hearts and putting wisdom in them and changing them for the glory of God. The Bible is full of stories of taking hard hearts of stone who were willfully obstinate against the Lord and melting them down and breaking their hearts. And using them for the glory of God. And so wherever you are today, repent, run to Jesus, and let him give you life. All right, let's pray. Take just a second before we move on today, before we begin to sing. And I want with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want you to just do business with the Lord. i got to believe in a room this size that there's got to be somebody in this room that's pretty close to walking away from Jesus because they're just not quite ready to give up the reins of their life. And I just pray that you, God, ask God to just mess you up today and hold on to you. Tell him, Jesus, don't ever let me go. Father, I pray and I ask today that we would be controlled by the love of Christ, that because you've died for us, we would die to ourselves. Father, and that those of us who are alive, Father, we would live for you. Because your love is better than life. My lips will praise your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.